0: It's hard to believe we have been having in-depth weekly conversations about movies since 2011.
1: Oh, you're telling me. Producing this show week after week is so much fun, but it does require a ton of work behind the scenes. If you'd like to help support our efforts, one easy way is by using our Originals page when shopping for books and movies that we've covered
0: your purchases made through our links, give us a small commission at no extra cost to you and allow us to keep having these great discussions.
1: We are highlighting adaptations from season nine over at our originals page, thenextreelcom slash originals. That's the site where listeners can purchase the source material for all of our adapted film discussions.
0: We had a big Robin Hood series this season, looking at nine different versions on screen. Many were likely adapted from Howard Pyle's The Merry Adventures of Robin Hood, including Douglas Fairbanks in Robin Hood, The Adventures of Robin Hood, Disney's Robin Hood, Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves, and the 1991 Robin Hood, and Ridley Scott's Robin Hood.
1: Robin and Marian was specifically based on the ballad, The
0: Jest of Robin Hood. And we really don't have too much to say about Robin and the Seven Hoods.
1: We talked Dead Ringers for our David Cronenberg series adapted from Barry Wood and Jack Geisland's novel,
0: Twins. Have you checked out that show? You know, I haven't, but I've heard great things. Two comedies from our Steve Martin series were adaptations Pennies from Heaven from the BBC series and The Lonely Guy from the book by Bruce J. Friedman.
1: The Best Little Whorehouse in Texas was part of our Colin Higgins series, adapted from the Broadway musical.
0: Spike Lee brought us Black Klansman from Ron Stallworth's memoir.
1: And we looked at a trio of John le Carey adaptations, The Spy Who Came In From the Cold, The Little Drummer Girl, and Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy.
0: Plus, all three movies in our Agneska Holland series were based on books Europa Europa, In Darkness, and Spore.
1: La Caja Fall and its remake The Birdcage both came from Jean Poiré's
0: original play. We also talked about arsenic and old lace and charade in our Gary Grant series.
1: All of these were based on other material, and it is all available on our originals page, thenextreel.com slash originals. Every book purchased supports the podcast.
0: Get the full list of adaptations we've covered and start your next read today at thenextreel.com slash originals. I'm Pete Wright. And I'm Andy Nelson. Welcome to the next reel. When the movie ends, our conversation begins. Robin Hood, 1991. It's time to talk.
1: Once upon a time, there was a 'er good-for-nothing ne'er-do-well. He saw the most beautiful woman in the whole of England.
0: Who's winning, Uncle?
1: Robert, of course.
0: I believe Sir Robert never loses
1: he fell in love with her. Well, the tragedy was she was promised to another mighty lord she will marry him.
0: I challenge Sir Miles <laughs> Robert Howard. as of this day, you are cast outside the law. A
1: noble renegade. The girl has made me an outlaw. Good. I'm going to show him what an outlaw is. An outlaw
0: does. Andy, what happened with this movie? Um... I, mm, I thought I knew where the bar was set, let's say, with all of the Robin Hood movies that we watched. I thought I knew where the bar was set. And then uh, Milk Toast happened <laughs> in the form of John Irvin's
1: 1991 <laughs> Robin Hood. Before we begin talking about our opinions about this film, I do okay. just want to say I'm looking at a, uh, a, a book called Robin Hood, Development of a Popular Hero. It uh, prepared by John Chandler, mm-hmm. and uh, I don't know who actually wrote it. It just is. I think it's just a collection or something. But anyway, uh, they reference uh, Robin Hood in the media, talking about several films, and this film actually is one of the ones that they reference. Let me just read this to you, okay? Please, yes. This film was originally slated for release at the same time as Robin Hood Prince of Thieves, but Fox recognized the power of its competition and decided to release this film directly to television and video. Most Robin Hood scholars and fans feel this is the better film. The story is much better and more in keeping with the traditional legend. John Irvin's direction is stronger and Patrick Bergen's Robin recalls the capricious and dangerous figure of the early ballads. The medieval character of the film is more historically accurate because J.C. Holt, a noted Robin Hood scholar, served as a consultant.
0: I believe that there are viewers of this film who will absolutely agree with that, and uh, and I think on, on many points, it, it looks uh, certainly looks more accurate. I had much, I had many fewer problems with uh, the setting and with certainly the costumes. There were no weird scarves. But uh, (laughs) and we'll talk about this later. There was that jester. So there are a lot of things going for this movie. Uh, I found this was this is the Robin Hood story. If you extract from it uh, any and all sense of style and personality and energy, it is it's just there. It is an amorphous uh just it's the amorphous blob of Robin Hood stories. I found it it might as well I just was like sucking it was sucking color out of the real world around me as I was watching it. <laughs> My world became beige during this movie.
1: I mean yes, I, I would agree there are some aspects to the story that I actually found kind of interesting. I'm like, yes. okay, this is an interesting way to play this particular antagonist, and uh, who isn't somebody who we've ever seen, and I'm sure we'll talk more about that, um, that these antagonists we've never seen in Robin Hood stories before. Uh, there are um, uh, landscapes that I, I really enjoyed, the way that they kind of uh, kind of treated life as they were living. I thought there were some interesting aspects to that. And the way that just some of the uh, the the relation of the normans and saxons that i believe the 1938 version had some of that talk and i don't think any of the other ones have have really brought that up since then so it's nice to kind of see that coming back into the fold here but on the whole like uh, the story just the way that the story is constructed the way that the comedy hits it just never worked for me, and the uh, and I would argue that I don't think John Irvin's direction is is all that strong in this particular film. I, I found mm-hmm. it to be uh, kind of a struggling film. I found some of the action sequences to be um, shot fairly poorly and staged oddly, where you you know the action is kind of weird to tell, like where are these people in relation to each other and why can't they see each other? It seems like they should be able to. And uh, and then the performances, like. I feel like looking at our lead actor of uh, Patrick Bergen as Robin Hood, like he's got a look that I really find striking as as the character. Like I just like him in the role. And then he starts kind of acting and it's just kind of like this odd And maybe, maybe it is like more appropriate to the capricious character in the myths or whatever, but I just didn't like it. Like he just never felt like he was a character I should be taking seriously. It was a really frustrating film to watch. I just, I never got a a sense that the storytellers really kind of put things into a, a place where Um, they could make an actual good film out of this, regardless of how close it is to the original Robin Hood myths.
0: You know what? We need to talk about a lot more of this uh, because I think you bring up many, many very important points. But first, uh, we need to tell you about something else. The Next Reel is brought to you by Audible.com. It is a fantastic home of incredibly well produced audio books and dramas and because i think it's fair to say that andy and i had a middling experience with this week's movie we thought hell with it we're just going to tell you about something really great <laughs> andy here here what what's really great you know there is a uh, an adaptation
1: of a film coming out next year that uh, i think we're both pretty excited for and it is uh, the adaptation of frank herbert's dune and because of that, I've been re-listening to my Audible copy of that, which is, I just think, a really stellar uh, uh, version of the telling of that book. And uh, it's it's great, and I'm getting prepped for it. And we said, you know what, so should everybody else who's listening. <laughs> <laughs> Check this book out. It is such a great read. It's uh, It's got one narrator, but then there are certain chapters where they actually have uh, a variety of... Voiceover actors playing different characters, and so it actually makes for a really fun listen.
0: Well, and it's uh, a really fun listen. I we we gotta mention some of those names because as a as a longtime fan of Audible productions. Uh, Dune has some of the real high point narrators. If you go for audiobooks because of the narrator, you don't even care so much about the books, like I do. You're going to go for these. Scott Brick, he is an alpha narrator. That guy does the best stuff. Uh, but that you have Orlok Cassidy and Ewan Morton and Simon Vance. Simon Vance? Are you kidding? He's immediately behind Scott Brick, and they hang out together. And I'm I'm sure that they dine together and and coffee and and probably some cards. And Ilyana Kedushin, uh, They're all. I mean, it's an incredible. I'm serious. I'm not even, I don't even, I have no motive to lie to you about this. It's that good. It's deceiving, uh, though. 21 hours and two minutes. It feels too short for Dune. Uh, Maybe that's just because the movie felt that long (laughs) the first time around. (laughs) (laughs) Anyhow.
1: uh, Yeah, it's it's a long one, but uh, it's, uh, I'm sure, I don't know, in context of long, like, like, big stories like this, like, where does that
0: fit as far as, like, a Game of Thrones? I don't know. I'm yeah, sure. Well, Game of Thrones is about twice that long. Right? Just for one uh, of the books. Okay. Yeah, for one of the books. Like, the the first... So they're all in the in 40-50 the hour uh, range. So this this yeah. is a, 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 practically a snack. You know what? If you're gearing up for Game of Thrones, this is a great appetizer. <laughs> there you go. Good for you. Anyway, this is how you do it. You visit audibletrial.com slash... The Next Reel audibletrial.com slash the next reel all you have to do is sign up for a new account there you get 30 days to browse the service on us and you get one book also on us so what you do is you search for Dune by Frank Herbert you look for the one with all the fantastic narrators, and you get it. And you'll get it for free, and you get to keep it forever, even if you decide, you know what, Audible's not for me. Uh, you get to keep the book. How can you lose? You can't. That's the truth. AudibleTrial.com slash The Next Reel. You'll support great audio productions. Most importantly, you will support us. Thank you very much. AudibleTrial.com slash The Next Reel. Thanks to Audible for supporting the show. Trick Bergen, Andy, Uh, he is a fine actor, but I realize why I never saw him in this movie when it came out. It's because I was seeing the other movie that was out this year with him in it. That is the (laughs) fine Sleeping with the Enemy with Julia Roberts, which turns out, uh, I I would say, is a bigger draw than Robin Hood. Uh, And and he, he was great in Sleeping with the Enemy. If you're a fan of Sleeping with the Enemy... This is uh, this is the version of sleeping with the enemy that, that you want to see. I think there's only one. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I liked him playing a creepy guy. Yes. better, I, And I think that a worked. contemporary guy. And that is actually why I wanted to bring this up. Like when you look at his performances in these movies, same year, my uh, I am uh, find him much more appealing playing both creepy, not heroic, but contemporary, not historic. Discuss.
1: Uh, Yeah, I I would agree with that. I I think, well, and and see, that's something, and I I didn't know if that was something that John Irvin was intentionally kind of putting into the script, trying to kind of create his own updated version of it or what he was specifically doing. But, like, there was some dialogue in this, uh, notably between uh, Robin and Marion, when they're Mm -hmm. kind of, there's some flirty conversations that feels like very modern conversations, that they would be having like i can't imagine them having kind of the trading the kind of the flirty barbs back and forth like they were here it certainly Mm -hmm. would have happened in, in earlier robin hood films and so uh so to that end it's like okay patrick bergen still doesn't fit oddly he's being kind of a more modern robin hood with some of that even if he is a more you know, contemporary to the time specific of what Robin Hood would have been like. So it was just it was kind of like, who are you trying to please here? Uh, Like, I really struggled with that. And yeah, Patrick Bergen, because of that feel that he doesn't fit quite in that, you know, that uh, period piece for me, just uh, it really didn't work.
0: Well, I find that disappointing, too, because I the more I see him in other things the more I like him. He's a very charismatic Irishman. I think he's he is like as watching clips of him preparing for the show. I I really like his performance. I like his style. I like his charisma. He's a magnetic guy and I didn't find that magnetism in Robin Hood and I feel like Robin Hood as a character by now we know needs to be a charismatic guy and there's something about the portrayal uh you know of of this Robin Hood that is less charismatic. I it may be the characters that are in orbit around him, and and I'll talk specifically about the antagonists here. The our original antagonists, right? We've uh, you know, in terms of of uh, you know making changes to Robin Hood lore, um, they've they've done it here, and I don't think it's for the better.
1: Yeah. I I don't know why. Like, I I struggled to find reason as to why they changed the antagonists for this story. Why did we end up, is it just, were they trying to very specifically kind of create this real dramatic conflict between the Normans and the Saxons? Because that seems like the only reason if Robin's going to be a a Saxon and then he's got these Norman overlords. Because I don't think and correct me if I'm wrong, but I don't think the sheriff would have been, I, honestly, I don't know. I don't know where the sheriff would have landed. But instead of the sheriff, no, we get Gerwin Crabe, who's playing uh, the the baron, and he's like the baron of the land. And Baron, uh, baron Roger Daguerre. Daguerre, right, Baron Daguerre. And then his buddy is visiting, um, a Frenchman, Sir Miles Fulcanet, played by Jürgen Prochnow, who we've talked about before and we've really loved in stuff like Das Boot. Here, he is playing a Frenchman, and his accent was just so hard for me to listen to. Like a German speaking, a French accent just never worked for me.
0: Yeah. In a movie that is uh, just sort of an energetic valley, uh, he is enough to get my to spike my blood pressure. I mean, I just I, I felt like this is maybe this is the comedy in the movie that I'm missing. It's just not a, a sense of humor I share. I was very frustrated um, watching this. And I and and that's what I mean by, um, you know, Patrick Bergen not having uh, enough to work against, you know, like you need a good villain to, to work against. And I felt like the, the conflict that we have, the face to face conflict between Robin Hood and Vulcan and, uh, Daguerre as the, the Daguerre hood relationship changes. Um, I, I felt like there was nothing energetic and cataclysmic and, uh, you know, emotional about it. It was, it was just there.
1: Yeah. it, And that's that's a frustrating aspect for this film, because you end up kind of creating this. Uh, I mean, the whole the whole reason that Sir Robert Hoad becomes Robin Hood is because of, you know, he helps a helps a guy out in the in the uh, forest. Uh, much right, the, much Miller, the Miller. Yeah. And uh, who had poached a deer. Uh, Falcone wants to uh, wants to punish him, along with uh, Daguerre's men, and Robin saves them. And he goes to his friend, the Baron, and but it just kind of creates this weird conflict. And you know, the whole like, you know, you're going to get lashed anyway. And then he's like, "Well, I'm going to reveal your big secret." And it just was like, this is the whole reason he goes off into the forest. It it just was like such a strange. Like as the sense of logic as to the way that that element of the story unfolded, I'm like, this is kind of odd for all of this to be the reason that
0: that he goes off. And and I think the frustrating thing, part that I had with it is is just its structure in the film. It, it was really, you know, made up of two scenes. Right. We already had the inciting incident, which was the, um, you know, his rudeness in the forest of Fulcane. But the two scenes that are most important to the, the change in Robin's status is that uh, first we had their conversation together. This is I'm speaking of Daguerre and uh, Robin the night before. And they're kind of saying, oh, you know, he's going to expect you to be flogged tomorrow. And, and then we have that bit of narrative where he shares that there is a secret between them that Robin knows about Daguerre, but he can't ever talk about. That's one scene. And then we have the next morning scene where... Everything unravels and everything unravels in a way that is so disjointed. Nothing feels like like it fits. I don't I don't care if you're a fan of the historical elements of of this Robin Hood, of the portrayal of the Normans and the Saxons, of the portrayal of the fiefdoms here that are at work across England. But the narrative structure of the film hinges on a scene that is not. Believable, it's chaotic and confusing, and I don't understand what drove Robin uh to blow up quite so much and uh you know and and incite this response from Daguerre. that and and once you lose that, you're right. The rest of the movie is just hanging by a thread,
1: yeah, that's good it is frustrating. I will say an element that came of that that I ended up finding pretty interesting was that Robin isn't giving anything back to the poor. He's just, you know, he's just robbing the, to basically get back at Daguerre and his men. Right. And because he knows that Daguerre has to pay this big tax to the prince. And so he's taking it so that Daguerre is basically left in the in the dirt and has to use his own money to pay. Mm-hmm. And um and through that, that leads Daguerre to actually start Burning villages and and you know all of that sort of stuff, which uh, which Robin slowly realizes, like, kind of like this is for me, and that actually is kind of the the turning point for him to go. Oh, I I need to help these people, and I thought that but, was actually. But you should
0: say it still wasn't his idea, right? It was Will Scarlet. It wasn't
1: his idea. No, right, right. That, which you know, <laughs> which and at first I was like. Is Robin really like arguing against this? I was like, "Yes." What are they doing with this story? Uh, But he, he you know, what's weird though,
0: Andy, that might have been the most believable angle in all of this Robin Hood nonsense, right? (laughs) The fact that this was actually originally a vengeance story, and he's not a good guy, and needed to be convinced that that giving back to the poor, and that's a thing I liked about this. That once he made that turn. We actually got the 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 mechanics behind uh what we get out of some of the other Robin Hood movies, which is he's buying the praise of the people, right? And he's buying the support of the people out from under, you know, Daguerre in this case, but out from under the lords that are uh that, that run the communities. That's the believable part. If they had found us
1: the way to write that into the script where I enjoyed these characters and everything that was unfolding, it would have been. A really interesting take on the Robin Hood myth. And I really would have enjoyed it. But they just kept doing things like over and over that uh, made it a struggle to watch this thing. Um,
0: so we have, we're missing the sheriff and Guy of Gisborne. Yeah. Uh, we have these other two. We don't have uh, the king
1: anymore. We don't have King Richard. We do have Prince John. Uh, Edward Fox plays him and pops up. Only for a like a, a brief moment in the middle of the movie, and <laughs>
0: what you think of him when <laughs> he shows up? Like- He's a character.
1: Well, at first, I'm like, "Who is this drunkard that they yeah. brought in to play the prince?" He's just like slurring his words, and just like this is just awful. And then I was like, "Oh, that's Edward Fox. Wow, what is he doing with his performance?" Because I like Edward Fox; he's done some great, yeah. great performances through his career. And then I saw this, and I'm like, "I don't, I don't even get what's going on with this version of the prince." So that was kind of, um, uh, kind of, uh, you know, I don't know, a little disappointing that they they did that with the prince. I mean he's not in a lot of scenes though, so it's not a huge <laughs> it's not a huge problem.
0: I think we have to talk about uh Maid Marion and how she fits into all of these these mechanics.
1: So Maid Marion is the uh what was she the niece, right? Of yes, uh Daguerre. Of Daguerre. And she was she was there because he was giving her to uh to Falconet as a bride so that Falcon A would give him a huge sum of money that would i guess help him pay off you know the the king or whatever right um and and so she's there and she's riding we first meet her she's riding with uh, falcon a when they're chasing this man in this fox hunt and that's how she meets robin which is a very odd meeting because i didn't even realize she was in the group and then all of a sudden he's just like looking at something and then it cuts to her and she's just on a horse i'm like where the hell did Marion just come from it was really poor staging because you couldn't even, you could barely register that she was there and then right. all of a sudden he's just staring at her and it's like where did she come from just not that, well crafted. Multiple times, right? Yeah, multiple scenes that she's in, multiple. she's
0: sneaking up.
1: No, not just her. It's it's the way that Irvin just constructed the film it's just you don't realize that the he doesn't create a good sense of space as far as where people are and all of a sudden you're cutting and you have like people like bad guys coming through these trees but like the good guys can't see them and it's just like but they're like in seeing distance of each other and just the way that he would stage things was very frustrating sometimes
0: yeah i i think that's a real that's a real point of frustration i in terms of Marion the character we do have some things that she does a little bit differently in this movie and and uh, I think there there are things about the way Uma Thurman plays Marion that I like a lot better than than what we got we've we've seen in some earlier Marion certainly in in Marion from Prince of Thieves um, she has a turn in the middle I mean she's obviously she's being married off she's the bribe you know you've you already set that up well enough but right in the middle of the film she uh, she sees Robin Belittle uh, Fulcanae and decides, you know what? I'm going to go hang with them. Cuts all her hair off, dyes it with I don't know something. Shoe polish. What do you use? What do you, What do you use in the? <laughs> it, what What is period hair what, dye? What does a 12th
1: century person? Yeah, 12th use century dye hair, hair dye
0: use. That's it's not clean. <laughs> I don't know. Uh, I don't know how you don't see it as hair dye. Like there were some real close-ups between Robin and Uma right. in this. How did he not notice? Like before he actually touched it, and it's coming off, and it was gross. Anyway, she is is she has got some real agency in this movie, and I think I really liked that. I felt like that's that's something that it was agency that was consistent throughout the thread of the film, and in in terms of the the role of her character, uh, I quite liked it.
1: But again, like so many Marians, even when they give her agency, by the time we get to the end, she's the damsel in distress.
0: Yeah, yeah. But, but maybe later at the end. I mean, you know, I don't know. Uh,
1: she still has to get saved in the wedding. It's, uh, you know, it, that's right, just right, one of those yeah. elements that unfortunately falls into it. Uh, but speaking of Marion, though, I, I enjoyed their romance. I thought it was interesting, especially because she was disguising herself. Amongst his merry men as a, as a page, basically. I thought that was actually kind of interesting. But what the hell? Where did this like random love story letter out of nowhere all of a sudden? Like he's sneaking off by himself to go have a rendezvous with with uh, Marion or who he thinks is Marion, but is actually Daguerre's uh, lover uh, who's setting a trap for him. Meanwhile, he doesn't realize that Marion is actually disguised as a page in his group. And he goes off to find this, to meet up with this woman, doesn't tell anybody where he's going. Luckily, he brings the page along with him so that he can tell this, this, (laughs) this love story to Marion, which is about him and Marion, of course, and how he met this woman and blah, blah, blah. It It was so corny the way that that whole thing played out. And, and meanwhile, she's like, no, 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 it's a trap. You can't buy into this whole thing. And. I'm like, this is, this is how all of this is going to unfold. It's, and I, you know, it's, it actually could have worked if it was just written better and performed better
0: and directed Certainly, certainly staged better, blocked better. I didn't buy it. I, I, I was very confused. I think that's a real high point in terms of just, just confusion of the story. How, how, where did it come from? Because it, it felt like how, I, I just couldn't connect how Daguerre and Fulcane would know exactly where they were i didn't I didn't understand the mechanics of who was following well, that's whom. What was
1: like how did he get how did so he got like a message from the woman yeah. uh, Daguerre's lover, but how is he getting messages? yeah, like nobody knows yeah it's like
0: None of that was set up. Yeah. It was no. very confusing. No, I I did not. Well, like they
1: it. do that a lot. They they have these things that happen, and I I don't know if it's just bad writing. Uh, well, it is bad writing, but I don't know if it's they're presuming that you know something or something got lost in the edit. I don't really know. But like likewise, we have this this guy that they hook up with who's selling. He he's carrying longbows, and and he says, oh, they're for Daguerre. He's put in a big order of these longbows to kill you, Robin. And he's just, and Robin's like, well, let me pay you and you come work with me. And and so he does. But I'm like, okay, but that's a story thread that never goes anywhere because we never hear about Daguerre getting upset that, you know, his longbows never showed up or something. So it's like, where's the, you know, it's just, it's randomly kind of thrown in just so Robin and his men can end up having longbows.
0: Those are, you know, awesome longbows. They were great. They were armor-piercing longbows. We never see them pierce armor except in the in, in the, the helmet uh, training
1: helmet training. There montage. Is, there's <laughs> the, the training, training moment, the yeah. training
0: montage. You're right. That's but but <laughs> we do see it, and and I did I do want to say that they kept in the movie as they're handing out the longbows during the big kerfuffle at the end, which we should also talk about the the freak parade. Mm-hmm. Uh, they left in. Just how weird it is to hand out a hundred strung longbows to people all at the same time. Like they are tied in knots. It's like taking one hanger out of 50 in an old in closet that where they're all tied up together. You take it and they all come out with it. That's what this was like. And I I thought that was a brave choice to leave that in the movie right it's we could not have done so clean hollywood magic we decided not to uh, there were moments see that's the thing it's like there are moments would have been so great to have uh daguerre stand up in uh, like from the battlements and scream hey those are my longbows <laughs> that would have solved all of this <laughs> exactly. Uh, exactly should, we, should we, you want to run through your list of of uh complaints complaints right. yeah sure
1: first up Right out of the gate, you know that you're in for a problematic film because when the title comes up, it's in papyrus font.
0: (laughs) That right there, (laughs) that says a lot. It says a lot. Although, uh, we should find out. Let's do a little real-time research. When was papyrus (laughs) font released? Because maybe it was brand new back then. It could have been the first project. They may have designed it. For this film oh. <laughs> in, in 1983. It was already so it, kind of it, played it had, in it had eight years. <laughs> eight years. Okay. Oh, now, what are you going to do? Credit to Chris Costello, the graphic designer and illustrator and web designer who uh, brought us Papyrus, which was awesome from 1983 to 1985. <laughs>
1: Um, there was, uh, so Friar Tuck had a bald cap, uh, and it was one of those bald caps where the top is bald, but then he's got kind of the ring around his head of hair. Um, he had it. There were a couple other people that had it and those things just never looked good. Like the top, like the bald area never seemed to match their skin tone. They just looked really, really frustratingly fake.
0: so white. Yes. It was so white. Uh, I,
1: yeah, it was. Those were not good, right? Okay, so Robin is—he's uh, stealing from Daguerre. Uh mm-hmm. There's one point though that he decides to rob at the church in the middle of service, mind you. Which, which you know, and they collect all the gold from all the people in the audit in the auditorium, the in the in the church to kind of get all of their gold. But then they also walk out with, like, the church's cross and, like, all these massive things. I'm like, what What are they going to do? Give that to a poor person who's had their taxes taken away from the Daguerre, and they're going to try to use that to pay for it next? Like, where? Right. where's the logic there? Well, it's such a stupid a...
0: bit of comedy because why would they – like, they're trying to be discreet. They enter in disguise, and they're trying to be discreet and pretend they're a part of the the sermon and Robin has the knowledge up the of the avitz uh investments and he's having his whisper thing and then these people who are ostensibly supposed to be part of the service start taking stuff off the walls like yeah. of course like they gives it all away it, it just it's ridiculous like they were well outnumbered by just the people who were in the service uh and they gave it away taking the cross that was too that was a bridge too far that was that was too much for me. Uh, I'm
1: just going to say the jester.
0: Oh, Andy! I,
1: I don't know if we even we can may as well just talk about him now.
0: Oh, Andy, that jester was just a gift. <laughs> he was such a
1: gift. <laughs> it, he th- was, that's, yeah.
0: He was weird and surreal. He was in a different movie. I honestly think he was in a different movie. When he pours <laughs> wine all over his face and Gah.
1: yeah, weird. I don't know what was up with it, but I, I, I went, I fluctuated all the time from this is, I wonder if this is how jesters really were. They're just like, not like just telling jokes and stuff, but just slightly not all there. Yeah. <laughs> and they're just, they're saying things that are off the cuff and wrong. Uh, but then this one, I'm like, I, hey, this is just, I uh, like, I I was laughing out loud at the tv because this thing was so weird and bad and i i never could figure out if if i liked it or if it worked for me or didn't work for me but it was always (laughs) just creepy uh
0: that actor is uh, named uh, philip mcdermott and he's from manchester england and he has done a couple of things uh this one I, I think you could. I, I, this might be the biggest one. He uh, the the best thing that he is uh, he's done by rating is Tomorrow La Scala. Well, let's see. Lucy Bates and Ian Burfield and no, uh, oh, this one does. Oh, David Oyelowo is in this one. Uh, this is a 2002 film. It's got a 6.8 uh, on the IMDb scale. So huh. the other one is the Baby of May, uh, Maison, which is uh, that's the one with Julia Ormond and Ray Fiennes and Philip Stone. It's actually it's actually a seven. It was a 1993 film, but those are the only other uh, films that Philem uh, McDermott has done. And I think I want to see those movies after watching him as the jester in this one. (laughs) It was a scene-stealing, scenery-chewing performance. It was something. It was definitely (laughs) something. (laughs) It was clearly the most energetic performance in the film. Yes, very true. Yeah,
1: that's All right, next up. I mentioned that there's a scene with the burning village, Robin and Marion are there um, paying uh, people, uh, you know, he's giving them money because uh, her husband has been killed because they said that they knew who you were, blah, blah, blah. And uh, meanwhile, the village is being, uh, you know, there's there's the normans running around setting things on fire and and robin and marion run out of the house and they see troops coming and they they run up into an, uh, a burning building and then they start making out i'm like is is this the time for this like what what
0: are you guys doing it's getting hot in here let's take uh, yeah, off all clearly, our clothes clearly <laughs> oh man you know sometimes when the mood strikes um you know yeah. You take I guess it. that's. I guess you've yeah. just never been in a relationship like that with that much passion or heat, so to speak. <laughs> uh, right. I I will say, like that whole scene is weird from the beginning. Do you do you note know, like how they arrived on scene? They get like the place is burning; it's on fire, and yeah. like homes are being destroyed. And they ride in and get off their horses and walk so casually into the scene, uh, I, I was really frustrated. Like, are you really going to interrupt this to give them a bag of coin? Like, I just didn't believe it. Like, I know you've yeah. got this going on. Here's a little thing for your trouble. Love, Robin. I just didn't Me- buy meanwhile, it. Meanwhile, you might want to get
1: out because your house yeah. is on fire. Like, it's, yeah. like it's just... Uh, there was too many conflict, conflicting yes. elements of the story all kind of hitting at that place. And it's like, no, no, no. Either he's yeah. helping these people... Or the village is on fire, but he can't <laughs> be helping both. them with gold while the village is on fire, and then sneaking off to the back room right. to no. have sex with Mary. <laughs> <laughs> Which is so weird. This is the one that the experts say is the better one.
0: I know. Who are these people? Uh, who are the know. experts? Yeah, we should question the experts. All right. Um, okay. We we've talked about uh, Edward Fox.
1: Um, oh, oh, I have a couple more. Yeah. So, um, they, so, okay, at the end of the movie, it's the wedding and they have to sneak in. And luckily it's, it's the, um, uh, Feast of Fools, uh, which is the 6th of January. And so they're going in, and apparently they all find costumes overnight. Like, sometimes it's just like an animal's head on their head, which is kind of gross. That was gross. Uh, Sometimes it's like a really elaborate costume. And everybody kind of dresses up, and they do this whole parade into uh, the castle. And because it's the, the Feast of Fools, they have to be let in. Whatever. I don't really know enough about the rules as far as that goes, but... But they find elaborate costumes in one night, and I was really impressed with uh, their ability to kind of put that together.
0: Okay, so the Feast of Fools, uh, it it actually, it was a a feast celebrated by the clergy in Europe. Uh, It was uh, the root of a brief social revolution in which, quote, power, dignity, and impunity is briefly conferred on those in a subordinate position. Uh and so it was a, a thing to upend and make the poor uh appear rich and do that while lampooning the the wealthy and, and the higher social classes. And because it was, I, I guess, this is what I imagine, because it was a thing that the clergy had started, that's what gives them the ability to wander into castles. And that's kind of the rule that that because the church was always able to do anything.
1: I just find it strange that They're still allowed to do that on the same day that this wedding is taking place. And Mm -hmm. there are conflicts known around this wedding that they're trying to stage. But let's let this random bunch of miscreants in who all are in disguises.
0: (laughs) Well, I did want to add this last little bit uh, that in the Middle Ages, particularly in France, the Feast of Fools was staged on or about the Feast of Circumcision. On January 1st. And the uh, Feast of Circumcision, it's a Christian celebration of the circumcision of Jesus Christ in ordinance with the Jewish tradition eight days after his birth. So, there you go. That's a day that I have not been celebrating. And I know that now I need to revisit our family calendar because, wow. New Year's Day, Feast of Circumcision. What do you eat on the Feast of Circumcision Day? Like, what is appropriate? What does one bring to a... Ring-shaped food? (laughs) Anyway. What's next on your list? <laughs> okay, so
1: um, uh, some of these points actually aren't aren't, aren't complaints, but the, my last complaint is just the way that they decided to end this film. So we have these people uh, all dressed up fighting all of the uh, Daguerre's men and... Uh, and falconese men and they get defeated and then we have the wedding it's very kind of at that point it's kind of a traditional robin hood story where robin and marion end up getting married and as soon as they get married and and kiss the sun comes out and this is the first time in the whole film that we've actually had the sun out and to that end, that was kind of nice the way that that happened, and all the colors change, and all of a sudden it's really vibrant and alive, and it looked great. And then one of these people who had been in the group this whole time, one of the Merry Men, was dressed like a tree. He was painted green, and he had leaves like glued all over him. And and I don't I don't recall seeing him in the fight. I know I saw him come in, but he's just there. And then at the end, when the sun comes out, he just he just looks up at it and goes,
0: oh. he erupts and quivers. That's what he does. He quivers I, that's the end with of the elation. Movie. Yeah.
1: What is, if John Irvin is such a great director? What is he saying
0: with this? You know, it's funny because once you start talking about it like that, it's a it's. It, definitely, the implication is it is is celebration of nature, right? It's a celebration of celebration the glory of of, yeah. of nature. Rebirth, and life. go back to the to the beginning of the film, and I actually we didn't talk about this, but the way the film opens, uh, lots of of close ups on you know living things, on foxes, on on uh, I don't know skunks and a rabbit, deer. Ba- no, there's a badger, yep, deer. Yep. There's a, a badger, right? Badger. <laughs> I should. Uh, <laughs> or the, a skunk. Only, the only. <laughs> Andy, this is the only <laughs> names of animals that I could think of right now are actually Pokemon. So. <laughs> <laughs> yes, they didn't exist in the 12th century. There was Pikachu for it, <laughs> running through the forest. Yeah. There is a little bit of a of, of a, a narrative at least a visual circle here is it, that that implies that Robin is is uh, or the the story of Robin Hood is one of the woods. I don't know. I I'm, I'm probably being too gracious. Um uh but but it is much more of a celebration of of the woods and natural space and and that kind of thing and until you get into the middle and they live in a cave. Right. I have just fallen apart. <laughs> I don't know what they're talking about.
1: Yeah, it's and, but and the, so there are things in this movie that don't work, but there are things that are interesting. Like I actually really enjoyed, I don't know if I enjoyed, but I found it to be interesting, the way that they played the antagonists, especially Deguerre, because he had been a friend of Robbins or Roberts, I should say, at the beginning <laughs> of the film. Oh, pause on that. Just one other note. At the beginning of the film, he introduces himself as, you know, he's Sir Robert Hode, Earl of Huntingdon, And so he's Robert Hoad. And then all of a sudden, people are calling him Robin Hood. Like, I went back and I'm like, wait a minute, did he say, yeah. now I will be Robin Hood? It never happens. Just suddenly, people yeah. are calling him Robin Hood. And then he is like going back and forth, Hode, Hood, Hood. I'm like, you know, it, it was very, very poorly
0: it was very confusing. Happened. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Like, what was this? Did he just give himself a nickname? I couldn't tell. Yeah. I think you're not supposed to be able to do that.
1: Yeah, it was weird. Anyway, back to my point. I liked that Daguerre, at the end of it, after Falcon a has been killed by, by Robin, mm-hmm. we have this uh, kind of changing of uh of position of daguerre where he doesn't want to fight robin he's a friend of robin's he's just kind of created the situation and rob it's really kind of all of this is because the two of them are are you know having a hard time as friends yeah and at the end we actually have uh the baron kind of yielding and and yielding his sword up to robin i'm like okay well this that actually was an interesting way way to kind of close this out as far as this mm-hmm. relationship went.
0: I agree. And yeah. it was the only time that I actually found myself appreciating the the change in in character here because I would not have bought that uh had they tried to do that kind of a twist with the sheriff, for example. No. Or, or, or yeah. you know, that would not have, have played. Uh, and and it, it may demonstrate why they made such a choice to give us original antagonists who don't have the baggage of Robin Hood lore in that case.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So I mean there are there are things going for it. Again, mm-hmm. I wish that the rest of the film structured around these things that kind of worked was better. Yeah, me too. A few things that I want to point out in in the fight at the end. There were actually people like getting their faces stepped on. Yeah. In the mud. Now I, I'm sure it was nice, squishy mud so that it wasn't hurting people, but I'm like, that's actually, I haven't seen that before. That actually, I give John Irvin a point for that. You know, it's like, okay. That was interesting. To we're going to show that.
0: some actual trampling. And then we
1: had to put up with uh, Friar Tuck and the, I don't know, one of Daguerre's men, the big another rotund fellow who likes to go at each other. I'm like, is were, was there a thing between these okay. two? Because all okay. of a sudden they they eyeball each other like it's you.
0: Yes. And we actually to the to something we didn't haven't talked explicitly about, but we're doing now is is violence in these movies. And this one sort of carries the day where now some of the most violent violent stuff or the one of the most sort of violent scenes is this one where this friar breaks the neck of another of a soldier right against his chest that's what's happening there yeah as he's reading the last like last rites he's saying last rites as he's as he's holding this guy's head against his chest and he separates his neck and then the guy falls and that's that's friar tuck becoming. John Rambo.
1: Yeah, I was like, wow, okay, he just went dark. Yeah. And I mean, we've seen some strangely dark moments in these Robin Hood films um, for quite a few of them, actually. It's, it's, It's definitely a Robin Hood thing where you have a lot of moments of levity And then there's these dark moments of of like people like because, I mean, back in the 1922 version, he breaks the guy's back around a column like he wraps him around a column and pulls him.
0: Well, there's another little bit of violence that we get uh, and retribution, I should say, in the character of Harry, right? The guy with the eye scar who is the the central betrayer in The Merry Men. He doesn't buy what's going on, what Robin is leading them to do. And so he decides, you know, I'm going to. I'm going to take Marion and I'm going to take her back to because now I know that it's Marion this. You don't need to know. Anyway, he takes Marion, who everybody else thinks is the page, and goes back and delivers Marion back to Daguerre and Fulcone. And, it, of course, Daguerre and Fulcone don't give this guy any passage. They take him and torture him and then they hang him in a cage. And uh, you see maggots crawling in and out of his eye sockets. They, they plucked his eyes out. Uh, It was it was pretty horrific. And that was something that we didn't have in some of these other Robin Hood stories was this character betraying our central uh, objective.
1: And that was another really interesting moment, because here you have this feast of fools, all these guys in disguise coming up to the castle to try getting in and they're trying to be jolly. And meanwhile, everybody is dumbstruck by seeing their friend hanging in the cage with his eyes gouged out. Only Friar Tuck actually is the wherewithal to kind of stay in character, as it were, yeah. and and do this whole speech that he has to do to get into the castle. So yeah. I mean, that was that 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 element I thought was actually pretty interesting. I did too. I did too. I call that a win. That's the film though, right? It has yeah. wins. And it has a lot of issues.
0: You want to talk briefly about Irvin? Um, and you said you, you didn't feel like this was necessarily a strong uh, example of strong direction. On, and I know you haven't seen a lot of Irvin's stuff. Yeah, I haven't. I've seen,
1: and I, I think he's, I don't know if he's still active. I know he was as of a couple years ago. But I've seen, I gosh, I'm just looking through his filmography. Ghost Story, uh, Next of Kin. Now I've seen this. Um, I th- I think i saw widow's
0: peak i quite liked widow's peak
1: yeah i remember liking that one too and city of industry would have been the most recent thing of his that i saw in 97
0: you haven't seen 1986 schwarzenegger classic raw deal no mm. I, I
1: missed most of those
0: that's a that's a significant miss there are
1: directors like this that i often wonder like would it be an interesting experiment to, like, go through his filmography and look at them and see, you know, is there something I'm really seeing here that that kind of ties this together as far as what he's doing with his projects? But, um, I don't know, I haven't found a director whose work I'm quite, quite that interested in uh, who's working at this level yet.
0: I'm not sure that this, I, I don't feel like this is the one. I think that the low points would would risk, I'd, I'd risk breaking me. Yeah, yeah. yeah. We haven't mentioned the script, but we've we've mentioned enough about the script just to credit Sam Resnick and John McGrath.
1: I didn't look to see what else they had done. Um, I think Sam Resnick, this is it.
0: John McGrath has has um, a, a bit of fair, but he, by, you know, by the end of in terms of what he's written, this was the second to the last thing that he did. Apart from some television, he did Myrie Moore, mostly TV.
1: He's a TV writer. So this was, okay, this is something that we should talk about. This was yeah. not designed to be a TV movie. And it was in, in the U.S. It, was, it became a TV movie. In certain countries, it did get a theatrical release, but not in the U.S. because of Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves, as I mentioned earlier. Mm-hmm. But it's, it's, it's interesting that the two people writing it are, well, mainly John McGrath and Sam Resnick, as I said, has no other credits. Um, he's a TV person. And yeah. so that's interesting that it ended up being kind of a TV project. Well, what's feels... funny about
0: it, do you ever watch any, I mean, do you, I know you don't watch a lot of TV, but there is a certain style and tone of TV shows like uh, BBC TV shows, right? They're, they're BBC productions. A, a lot of the contemporary ones, you'll get them, they're produced either in, in Wales or down in, uh, in Vancouver, right? Or, or, and they, they all share the same kind of, of look. Uh, and texture, and aspect ratio, and uh, and just the way the characters move—it's all the same. This fits right in there. This absolutely feels like the the made-for-TV Robin Hood series to me. Could you, you, with very little <laughs> updating, you could be right there. That's yeah.
1: I wouldn't uh, put it too far past that. Even yeah. even the cinematography—you uh, know—Jason uh, LaHell is behind the camera here um it feels kind of tv-ish um they shot in some beautiful locations uh even if it was kind of overcast generally throughout the film there were some really nice areas that they found to use as locations but um uh, yeah and i I don't know really if i can fault him or if it really falls on Irvin's shoulders as far as the way that things were staged with the camera
0: yeah how'd it do at the box office
1: Well, we already talked about what a troubled little project this one was. Uh, Irvin's film cost $15 million to make, which is about $28.2 million in today's dollars. Unfortunately, as we've discussed, caught in the battle of two similar films being released within months of each other, Irvin's British production decided to drop its theatrical release in the U.S. to avoid getting crushed by Costner's Juggernaut. This one went straight to TV instead, as I've said, premiering on the Fox network May 13th, 1991, a month ahead of Costner's film. It still played theatrically around Europe, as well as in Australia, New Zealand, and Japan, but I can't find anything about what it earned. I'm guessing that's largely because of the TV release here in the states. Oh well, can't have broken Costner's record, so we will just leave it at that.
0: You know what? On the spreadsheet, just put it right below. <laughs> just, just, we'll just, we'll just write assume. the next thing down, and we'll just just, we'll assume, just assume that assume. it did. It was second to that, and there's <laughs> nothing else less. to talk about. One dollar. The price is less right. dollar in less. euros. Yes, that's fine. <laughs> uh, I think it's time for us to rank it, Andy.
1: Yeah, this was a frustrating one. Uh, Very trying film. So, uh, uh, yeah. But hey, what are you going to do? Sometimes that
0: happens. Head over to flickchart.com slash the next reel and you'll see the list of all the movies that Andy and I have talked about on this very show. And uh, if you swipe over in your show notes in your podcast player of choice and tap on the word flickchart, it should take you straight to this movie where you can add it to your list and see how it stands up against ours. First up, Robin Hood or A Star is Born, 1937. A Star is Born, 1937, please.
1: Yes, indeed. Robin Hood or Robin and Marion? Robin and Marion. Robin and Marion. Robin Hood or The Hudsucker Proxy? The Hudsucker Proxy. You know I have problems with that movie, but I will still pick it. Yeah. (laughs) For this one. Robin Hood or The Hound of the Baskervilles, 1939.
0: Oh, The Dogs. Give Those me some wrathbone. Dogs. Yeah, I'll take Rathbone over this. Robin Hood or The Edge. The Edge. Yep, I'll take The Edge.
1: Robin Hood or Rush. Once the film that was at the bottom of our list.
0: I would, I would watch uh, Robin and Robin Hood before Rush. I would watch Rush before Robin Hood. Oh, Andy, Andy, Andy. No, we must reset expectations here. You cannot. This is the Rush is a movie with a legacy around these parts. You can't just that's, do that. That doesn't matter. I would still pick it over this. Yeah, we're going to go to the mat. This, this is a ridiculous peep, place for you and I is, to come to blows. Ah. <laughs> here we go. I mm-hmm. was playing Tree Man there. Yeah. One, one, one. Okay, here we go. One, two. two three three, rocker as it should be you uh, go to sleep just sleep on it sleep on it you're gonna feel resolved in the morning it'll be fine oh we'll see actually i think you're not gonna think at all about this in the morning (laughs) i probably won't it's so low on the chart now i'm not
1: gonna worry about it robin hood or children of the corn children of the corn children of the corn god that's also a bad movie yeah robin hood or scoop oof Wow. Haven't thought of that movie. I forgot Scoop. that movie existed. Scoop. I will take Robin Hood here. That
0: was, bad that was a bad movie, Scoop. That's a bad
1: movie.
0: gonna I'm going to allow myself a little bit of grace to be swayed. You're right. All right. You can have it's it. Robin Hood <laughs> it is. So that leaves Robin Hood
1: at 4.08 on our chart. 4.08 out of 4.16. I'd say that's a pretty low spot to
0: land. What, uh, what did it do on your personal chart?
1: Well, let's see. Uh my personal chart landed at forty one twenty seven out of forty one ninety-four,
0: which is about a two percent. And that's exactly where
1: uh it is on our chart, two percent.
0: It uh it, it fared almost as uh as poorly on my personal chart. Out of eleven hundred and one movies, it's at ten sixty seven, which is three percent. Uh so it did, did just a, a hair better. You know, if I go by the algorithm, this is one of those movies that doesn't light up any stars on uh, flickchart.com. So at letterbox.com, it, I I just I'm not going to give it zero stars. <laughs> like it's not it's not that movie. It's it's a, maybe a one and a half star movie for me. What's uh, where did it land for you?
1: Is it a one for me? And yeah. I think that's largely because there are there are some interesting elements in it it's just the whole package is just done so badly that uh that it's hard to justify thinking about those elements cuz they just uh, they're just not in something that i want to look at again
0: this is uh for me it's a movie that's um I see it uh, when I'm hungry, and I turn it off and I'm hungry again almost immediately. Like I don't even remember having eaten <laughs> and and that just doesn't it's not a, a it's not an offensive movie. There are things that are happening. There's some good moments in it. Um, but it is uh, I, I said at the beginning, it's a milk toast film, and i I struggle with that. i'm not I'm not going this is not going to be a go- to Robin Hood recommendation going forward. it's It's right where it needs to be.
1: I wish that I found it as as milk toast as you find it, because uh, I mean there's just there were elements in it that just plain were just frustrating for me. So yeah. it's a, it's a little more you know something in my stomach that's that's giving me it's churning.
0: Me. It's churning. Yeah. All right, all right. I'll take that. Uh, okay, so where do we land? Is it a, it's a one star? Yeah, uh, one and one and a quarter basically. So. Yeah, it's fine. Give it a one star. And and I don't know if I need to say it out loud, but. I'm not going to give it a like.
1: Nope, I think that's clear. All right, where do we go from here? Uh, this will be a fun jump. We're only going a couple years, but we're jumping to Mel Brooks's 1993 film Robin Hood Men in
0: Tights. <laughs> okay, I thought about Robin Hood Men in Tights a lot during this movie. In the the one scene in particular is when the village was on fire. <laughs> That's how Tights opens, and the the villagers come out and say, "There's got to be a better way to do credits." (laughs) Every time you do a Robin Hood movie, you burn down our houses. (laughs) I just wanted that sweet relief during that scene. Uh, Well,
1: it'll be a fun one to uh, to talk about for no no other reason than to change things up in this series. That's right. this is really our penultimate movie end. here, Metatites.
0: We're almost at the end of this epic series, and uh, Ooh. yeah, that's a breath of fresh air. Uh, we've we're deep in planning uh, for the Marvel Movement. minute. Don't forget to go back and uh, uh, check out season one if you haven't listened to it. There's some there's some sweet, sweet podcasting about that old Iron Man. When the movie ends, our conversation begins. Amazon giveth, Andy. As Amazon always doeth. Now, this movie has uh, the the preponderance of reviews leans high in terms of the stars. (laughs) And that's frustrating when... It really does. 60%
1: five-star reviews.
0: It's a lot of five-star reviews. And so uh, I usually, when we don't care for the movie, we go, Hi, I am not doing that because I like the one stars so much. Uh, But you (laughs) were feeling uh, confident that you could find a good five-star review. How'd that go for you? Uh, <laughs>
1: <laughs>
0: Make that sound one more time for the kids. I don't need, I don't
1: need any new ringtones. Uh, <laughs> I have a five star by Mr. Bill.
0: <laughs>
1: I don't know why I'm finding that so funny. Mr. Bill says, for five stars, good as any, better than some. That was it. That
0: was his review. Oh, no, Mr. Bill. <laughs> better than some (laughs) well my one star is it's sort of a concatenation between two reviews and uh, they because they build off of one another the the real one that i want to talk about is titled pathetic by dan uh but dan actually references a robin hood movie i just didn't get by sir gawain and so i'm just going to read one line from sir gawain's and then i'm going to read you dan's uh sir gawain says There is a more thoughtful side to the Robin Hood in this movie, but it was overridden by him acting like a smart aleck. For example, there's a scene where Robin Hood reveals his secret of shooting the bow to his fellow outlaws by giving them the finger. You see, the secret it is in his middle finger. And yes, they laugh. Ha ha, I guess. So Dan continues, I'll save my time and suggest you just read the other one star review of this movie. I agree that the best portrayal in motion pictures of Robin Hood was the British TV series Robin of Sherwood, uh, but the best presentation of Robin's legend I read in grammar school. I wish I could remember the title or the author, but it was the best adventure book I've ever read. It showed the whole story of Robin Hood as a teenage boy who came became an outlaw for killing a deer to his most wonderfully depicted death. This movie is a primitive. In one scene, there's a soldier who threw a big rock that probably weighs half a ton off the stairs as if it was a basketball. If this movie was true, there would be no Legend of Robin Hood, and it seemed at times it was made to mock that very person. But perhaps it's about Robin Hood, not Hood? I wouldn't even recommend this movie for the kids on a Saturday morning. We didn't talk about A, the middle finger bit, or throwing the rock like a basketball, which both were in my notes and are (laughs) straight-up hysterical.
1: You're right. Oh, so many more things we could
0: talk about. So many more things. Thanks, Amazon. I've been podcasting since 2006. In that time, I've tried countless hosting platforms. But in August 2022...